Well, it is always a great pri- privilege to be to be asked to do these, um, for I am not an academic, uh, I am not a doctor, although um, UBC for a long time, when I taught the organ there, addressed all my correspondence to Dr. Norman, so I wrote a letter saying, look, you need to be clear, I am not a doctor, I don't have a doctorate. So they wrote back thanking me very much, in an envelope marked Dr. Edward Norman. So, <laughs> so I just gave up. So I'm... <laughs> um, the idea of preparing for Easter embraces not only the triumph of uh, Christ's victory on the cross, the uh, uh, killing of the great enemy, death, and the opening up of um, both personal relationship, uh, relationship with the church, and for all of us, eternity. Um, it also embraces the lead up to that, of course, through Passion Week and through Lent itself. I do, but you can get these hints of Easter coming. But it poses a problem, you know, musically, artistically, how does one go about depicting all this? And George Herbert, who was born around 1600, just shy of it, um, said this, Shall I then sing, skipping thy doleful story, and side with thy triumphant glory? Shall thy strokes be my stroking, thorns my flower, Thy rod my posy, cross my bower. How then shall I imitate thee and copy thy fair though bloody hand? So he, if he struggled with it, it's a small matter that I've struggled with it a bit today. Um, if we jump sort of to the end of the plot, to the divine plot, this music perhaps sums up things very well. Let me know if it's too loud or not loud enough. This is Handel, one of the Shandos anthems. And you'll hear the words. It's wonderfully set. The words are from Psalm 86. Let God arise and his enemies be scattered. him flee flee wonderful word painting so 
I love that piece. <laughs> um, so that's a kind of thread that goes through preparation for Easter, it seems to me. A lot of this is terribly personal, but that's how it strikes me. Is his enemies will be vanquished. Um, the ultimate enemy certainly will be. And, of course, there's also the, some, something of an eschatological um, aspect to it as well. When Christ returns... Um, there will be judgment and there will things will be set right, as um, Sam says to the Lady Galadriel. <laughs> things really will be set right. But during Lent, um, of course, we have the, um, we have the penitence and the self-examination. We have the trying to walk with Christ through that, those appalling circumstances that lead to his uh, mock trial and um, corrupt a whole corrupt uh, so-called justice system that ends in his execution. It's interesting, just as the Baroque language of Bach and Handel and their contemporaries seems to handle scriptural truth so readily, um, it's almost as though you don't need anything more, but as we all see, that's <laughs> not quite the case. Um, so the guys who came before, so Handel dies in 1759, um, and then... Uh, he was born in 1685, but one century earlier than that, Richard Farrant, a 16th century, obviously, um, composer writing at that very difficult time where, are you Catholic? Are you Protestant? Your life may be at risk if you don't give the right answer. Um, he and many of his contemporaries, Richard uh, um, uh, Bird and Tallis and so on, wrote very touchingly in, in another kind of language um, uh, 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 of some of these texts. Lord, for thy tender mercy's sake, lay not our sin to our charge, but give us that is past, and give us grace to amend our sinful lives, to decline from sin and incline to virtue, that we may walk in perfect heart before thee now and evermore. And these guys took scriptures which we tend not to see set to music so readily today, um, real, the real meat of both the gospel and the epistles. Uh, I notice a lot of modern composers shy away from that and go for, you know, praise the Lord all you people, or <laughs> something a little more, um, a little less specific. It's interesting, for instance, in the Handel's Messiah, that if there are cuts to be made, it's usually in part three, where there's some Pauline texts set. It's not as picturesque as the first part with shepherds and angels. Um, these guys had a, a, I can only call it a kind of authenticity, a minimalist approach to the text, and it's very refreshing. This is, as I say, uh, Lord, for thy tender mercy's sake, Richard Tarrant. Westminster Abbey it's very simple yeah. syllabic yet there's imitation 
other voices come in in response a sense of community singing almost got a walking pulse. music of course was written and most of the leading 16th century composers Elizabethan composers were attached to some marvellous acoustic. <laughs> could have been the Chapel Royal or it could be Westminster Abbey. Um, there are a number of places where these gentlemen operated but they were writing for an acoustic that would carry this glorious sound and create a kind of uh, in musical environment, um, little world in which these sounds almost collide with each other. It's um, which, just as the architects of those buildings, I think, hoped, though I'm no expert, that this would be some kind of hint of heaven. <laughs> Best we can do for now. Um, the other uh, discipline that we are familiar with through Lent and in, in, in Passion Tide is a um, though it gets into slightly balancing territory in Protestantism is, is Christ on the cross we don't normally we don't let it stop at the crucif crucifix uh, nor should we nevertheless it's easy to skip that and so we don't think much on the um, perhaps on the sufferings of our Lord the significance of the, the, the Roman spear in the side the blood coming forth and the water coming forth Yet this old text um, <clears throat> um, of uh, Ave Verum Corpus it does refer to all those things. Now this setting is, well they're all sung in Latin, sorry. They usually, no, no, there are some English translations actually, though not commonly. It's usually sung in Latin. It's been set by composers <clears throat> from the 16th century and earlier right through to the present day. I hope you don't mind listening at a little more length to this. It's by Imant Raminch, who's a Latvian composer, uh, born in 1943, and lives in the interior. Um, he gained quite a remarkable name for his compositional work, with this being one of the sort of uh, first of his products. And choirs and directors were bowled over by it. It's a gorgeous setting. So Imant Raminch, R-A-M-I-N-S-H, um, Aviverum Corpus.
clearly this is less functional than Farrant. It's also trying to create, through its pacing and sustained textures, a reflection, allowing us to reflect, momentarily at least, on the text. Canadian choir conducted by Noel Anderson. Noel Anderson. To see a Laura Festival singers. by the spear he's repeating death, we reflect on your death as an anticipation of our death Jesus, Jesus uh, P.A., Holy Jesus, Son of Je- uh, Jesus, Son of Mary, have mercy on me. Amen. 
you feel you ought to have one of the distinguished art depictions of our Lord's passion to gaze on during this kind of music. I find that deeply moving. I don't know if you do, but um, no, it's not easy to hear all the words. That's partly because these recordings are all done in these sumptuous acoustics. But um, if one does know the text, perhaps through repetition or lit- liturgical repetition, um, I, or you're told or given a translation, it can be very powerful. Um, that's a very specific reflection and perhaps if you prefer always to have it in plain English (laughs) there are some wonderful things that reflect on Christ's work through this uh, time that we're in celebrating now or acknowledging now this work I think is a fine piece of music by the Canadian composer Paul Halley based in Halifax Uh, I think I may have played it before but anyway it doesn't matter it's He takes the beautiful hymn, Jesus, the very thought of thee, which is a Latin text from the 12th century, with a tune from uh, our time almost, a Gordon Slater, who I met, so it can't be that far ago. Oh, I suppose it could be. (laughs) Um, was organist at uh, Lincoln Cathedral, and he wrote this wonderful tune, um, which you'll catch in just a sec. But the words are important. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills the breast. This is a 19th century translation, so there's much sweetness uh, and also quite a few breasts about. But but sweeter far thy face to see and in thy presence rest. No voice can sing, no heart can frame, nor can the mind recall a sweeter sound than Jesus' name, the Saviour of us all. O hope of every contrite heart, O joy of all the meek, to those who ask, How kind thou art, how good to those who seek. You may recognise it as having sung it. Jesus are only, well, there's more, but what to those who find are this, nor tongue nor pen can show. The love of Jesus, what it is, none but his, it says lovers, no, in this translation. Jesus, our only joy be thou, as thou our prize wilt be. In thee be all our glory now and through eternity. So this is how, Paul Halley takes that hymn. He takes the tune too and does this with it. I think Terry has done this here, I think. The tricky little organ part. So it's kind of almost a fluid kind of calming accompaniment.
it's majestic, isn't it? <laughs> but the by reharmonizing each verse, same tune, um, with the text intact, he brings different colors to bear on it, as well as a different level, perhaps, of um, it, commitment, involvement, enthusiasm. I don't know how exactly to put it. Um, but at any rate, it strengthens as it goes on. The opening with that burbling little water it reminds me of my mother who as Manu will remember was in the, um, the Broadway home and uh, she played the cello and she gave a recital at the age of about 96 <laughs> and she's going to do Sanson's The Swan and, uh, and uh, Campus was brought in my mother said I'm the swan you're the water <laughs> um but, so there we are, uh, a Canadian composer, Canadian choir singing supremely well. Um, my goodness me. Um, which is a, a sideline. Uh, th- these, these performances are so carefully crafted, it, it's, um, it brings them to life in a wonderful way. Um, <clears throat> now, there's a fascinating composer, committed Christian, um, very much alive and well, called Arvo Pert. And uh, he's Estonian. And he has a very interesting take on the text he handles. This is back into Latin again. Uh, one of our great <clears throat> struggles for any, one of the great struggles for any church musician, especially working in an evangelical Protestant tradition, is that so much wealth of music, historically and currently even, is with Latin texts. Um, it's a language that fits music very, very well, or music can handle it best, I think, of all the languages. But uh, again, it, it, it rests on the assumption that people kind of know what's being sung anyway. <laughs> Just as when, in many an Anglican church, you will start off with Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison. We know what means, have mercy upon us, Lord have mercy upon us, Christ have mercy upon us, because you're taught. <laughs> um, anyway, he's working on something of that assumption when he sets this Deum. Do you remember the Tadeum? We don't sing it much now, but it was a critical part of the morning prayer service in the prayer book. And it's an ancient Christian hymn. We praise thee, O Lord, we acknowledge thee to be... It's a marvellous text and very much worth reflecting on through um, through this period that we're in now. Um, just a reminder, we praise thee, O God, we acknowledge thee to be the Lord. All the earth doth worship thee, doth worship thee, the Father everlasting. To thee all angels cry aloud, the heavens and all the powers therein. It's a model of praise, because it starts there, not here. And then moves on to here at the end, which is <laughs> a bit we're going to listen to. Uh, to thee, cherubim and seraphim, um, continually do cry, holy, holy, holy. And so it goes. The second bit says, the glorious company of the apostles are praising you. It says the goodly fellowship of the prophets are praising you. The noble army of martyrs are praising you. The holy church of all the world doth acknowledge thee. The Father, what a set of statements. That's the way to get going. Thou art the king of glory, O Christ. Um, and on and on. When thou then turns into the period we're considering, when thou hast overcome the sharpness of death, thou didst open the kingdom of heaven to all believers. You sit at the right hand of God in the glory of the Father. We believe that thou shalt come to be our judge. So it's a, the credo in this is extraordinary. 
We therefore pray thee help thy servants whom thou hast redeemed with thy precious blood. Now it starts turning in on us. Make them to be numbered with thy saints in glory everlasting. O Lord, save thy people. And this is where I'm going to cut in because it's a long, long work. He extends it. I'm just going to cut, cut in and see if there's a recorder. Oh, yes. Um, <clears> o <throat> Lord, have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us. O Lord, let thy mercy lighten upon us. And as our trust is in thee. O Lord, in thee have I trusted. Let me never be confounded. And he adds, Amen, holy, holy, holy. This, at any rate, I hope you'll uh, be patient with this. It may not go to the top of your top 20 play-at-home discs, but it's fascinating. Because of the stunning acoustic, it's very hard to hear the words, I'm afraid. Fiat misericordia tua. trust. Let me never be confounded. Non confunda in eternum. Let me never be confounded again.
I think this guy has caught a vision. <laughs> Something's lifted him, as it did with Handel and the Messiah, but at a different way. This is not something just to be thrown off. It's there's a time dimension here. So there's a weightiness. This is Sanctus. Holy, holy, put these things on and present them to the church universal I don't know uh, it's because it is of course concert material you can't do that in a in the course of a service it, it's a long work and people would start to you know, <laughs> um, it's a shame though isn't it I know as a child going to our little parish church in East Yorkshire the thing I dreaded most was a Deum because it went on and on and on and I wasn't a Christian I didn't know what it was about I just um, and the choir was appalling and the organist wasn't much better and oh half my mates were in the choir which made it even worse and uh, <laughs> my memories are not positive but this is so moving and it, it is a historic hymn of the church and I think with so many of these um, thoughtful treatments of texts, there's a spotting that we shouldn't be hemmed in by the time. Um, this uh, chronometer approach to worship. Um, the Orthodox Church has learned that, of course, from the word go. You might be there three hours. <laughs> or for that matter, as a Catholic, you might go to the watch night service, one of which I played for, and it goes on, and uh, it, it's late, and, and there are children there. But yes, this is what we do. You don't do, as they kept saying at a certain church I worked at in America, every time, please, please be seated and be comfortable. <laughs> I think it's... Please listen and be uncomfortable. And that's the role of the word. There's comfort, of course there is, but um, don't come with an expectation all the time, uh, or predictability. Um, don't look for the predictable, because our Lord isn't. Um, he is at one level, but not at another. Anyway, I'm babbling, I'm sorry. The person, I think, brings a wonderful sense of humour to our condition. Uh, which should be a cause for great uh, reflection and solemnity, is Handel. I mean, really, uh, so we're all like sheep. How 
He's using that scattering technique that he used in uh, Let God Arise. Scatter. <laughs> reminds us of Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all complete change of mood so we've all gone like sheep but inspired isn't it um, you know, it's a gorgeous performance that's one of the be- best uh, messiahs I think at least the critics feel so um, by John Butt and the Dunedin consort uh, he himself the conductor being a Chris- committed Christian um, seems to make a difference <laughs> then uh, it's not long after that that Handel sets a beautiful aria uh, time doesn't permit to play it but thou didst not leave his soul in hell beautiful song there is um, 
another approach to our, our preparation for Easter. Um, I think I've used, I've quoted from her before. Um, this is um, Maddie Pryor. This is for Easter Day, of course. This is, uh, she's trying to recreate the gallery music tradition that preceded the period in the 19th century when parish churches felt obliged to imitate cathedrals. Uh, again, at my little parish church in Yorkshire, uh, that make it very plain through the, through the old prints that the choir was in the back in a gallery with a few stray musicians and a rather beaten up old organ. That was where the music came from. There were no robed choirs in the parish churches by and large. But with the impact of the uh, Tractarian movement, what we loosely call the High Church movement in the 1840s, roughly, parishes all over Great Britain and then into the the Empire um, felt, no, no, you have to have a robed choir up at the front um, and with the clergy and the organs are pushed to the front, the choirs moved up to the front, um, and this kind of music making kind of folk music making almost from the back uh, went by the board uh, not in every case but the result was my choir that I heard of my parish church trying desperately to sing music that was beyond them and uh, uh, didn't really work great thing is to do it well however simple it is um, I'd love you to just listen to a clip I want to leave room for discussion but I'd love you to listen to this clip took a bit of tracking down from uh, Tapestry on CBC uh, Peter Tony, a Christian, Catholic host of Choral Concert uh, resigned from that job or retired from that job and they interviewed him um, and it was really quite a revelation. The actual performance, unfortunately, I think is mono of the disc because it's archival material, but that doesn't matter. It's Birds Hake Deers, which is, this is a day the Lord has made and is traditionally sung on Easter Sunday. Um, and this is how the thing, the, the interview went. But you do have a piece of music for us to hear and I'm, I'm really intrigued now. What sounds like Easter to you? <laughs> Tell us about this piece of music. This really sounds like, like Easter to me because it's, just, it's a pure joy. It's a piece of a cappella choral music from the 16th century. Music by the great uh, Renaissance master William Byrd. And I like it because to tell you the truth, some music that's Easter music is too overblown, I think. I mean, I, that's fine to celebrate, but but this is this is contained and what can I say? It's sentiment without sentimentality. Ah. You know? Sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> uh, the, the text is Hake Diaz. The text translates to um, "This is the day that the Lord hath made." Hallelujah. It's often sung in in, this, in the Easter service. It's not long. It's just two minutes, but it's two minutes of perfect everything. It's, it's intricate. It's difficult. I think the listener and the performer have an equal kind of uh, thing going on here. Yeah. I can't wait to hear it. Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> 
Unlike the pharynx that we heard earlier, this is more complex, as he said, with voices coming in at different times, creating a kind of almost a conversation or a chatter. comments afterwards I find quite significant especially for CBC <laughs> isn't that incredible what you can do with the body that's a choir known as the 16 they're from the UK one of the great choirs in England uh, conducted by Harry Christopher's translation is this is the day the Lord hath made hallelujah listen to this that, you know what just happened knowing as little as I do about classical music doesn't usually bother me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's just I love other kinds of music and mm-hmm. I just go through one day to the next. Sure. And listening to this, I just all of a sudden felt impoverished that I don't <laughs> know this world. I'm thinking, what else am I missing? Oh, that's wonderful. Well, you know, the thing, the thing about William Burke... I think that's a very significant comment. ...was yes, praise God, but it was also written to be admired. I think he must have had a really good sense of self. And, and <laughs> yes, yes. He does celebrate. And he's not saying, oh, no, I'm really not that good. You know, no, yes, this is, yeah, I am. And here it is. That's a message we don't hear often in the context of sacred music it's, or Christianity. Or, so he's, he's just strutting yeah. his stuff a little bit there, isn't well, he? And it, too, it reminds me of the fact that we think we're doing all the work on this side, you know. And no, God's done all the work already. <laughs> you know, we just have to respond. You know what I mean? I'll leave that with you. (laughs) A little bit of propaganda there thrown in by Edward Norman. Um, I feel impoverished. Um, Then, what I mean? Oh, yeah, of course, we can't, I won't, I don't want to leave time, but we can't um, let things go without bark commenting from the, the Easter Oratorio. Um, Laugh and Dance uh, is essentially the text. Mm-hmm. 
This is a Japanese choir, Japanese conductor, Christian Suzuki, I think, is the name. Um, and there's a remarkable article which you can look up on the la- online First Things magazine. Um, the argument is that people are turning to the Christian faith, examining the Christian faith, inquiring about the Christian faith in Japan through the music of Bach. <laughs> it's a phenomenon. Um, the Japanese uh, academic writing says it, it reminds her of um, an earlier uh, encounter she had in East Germany, GDR days, and she met the boys from the uh, uh, big dome in um, Dresden where Schutz was, and they sing Bach. And, and she said to the boys, what does this mean to you? Uh, you you're in an atheist society. And they, one of the boys says, no, Bach has been witnessing to us all the time. Extraordinary thought. I've heard it happening for organists too in Japan, that they've spotted something, which there is something in Bach. Uh, it's laden with theological motifs. Rising figures for Easter, descending figures for Lent, Passion Tide. Uh, so, just throw it in. Somewhat into our time, Vaughan Williams set famously a hymn tune that we should all know. to speak over the music but time doesn't permit otherwise I'm indebted to Bill Reimer for lending me this book on George Herbert the writer here says that the, here the versicles are a couple of trimeter couplets four short lines set between the choruses of Let All the World a country congregation is imagined bellowing its psalms in Sternhold and Hopkins clunky version and audible in the fields beyond its door Clear as a bell, with its musical form fashioned to match and reflect its content, the poem's two little stanzas stanzas encompass the whole world announced in the first line. Heaven and earth, community and individual, the cosmos in a nutshell. can shut them out. 
bit of bubble. Can't remember how it goes. Shame to say. Oh, I should look it up. But above all, the heart must bear the longest part. Not to make a point, uh, apart from the Tony clip, um, but to sh- just put on display some of the riches that there are there as we prepare for any season in the church year, but we're looking at Easter. Um, there are other things here, but I want to leave time for comments, discussions, or the rotten tomatoes that Manny's been threatening me with. Would you like some help and facilitation, or...? Yeah, if you can believe them, that would be good. Keep them in line. Okay, Kurt. Uh, I'll quote the uh, CBC host. I, I feel impoverished. I mean, I, I started my music lessons in a uh, kindergarten, a musical kindergarten when I was five years old, and I, I wish I uh, was more disciplined and sat in a piano school and practiced. <laughs> the very first piece you played by, by Handel, Song 86, Yes. It's one of the Shandos anthems. Um, he wrote a set of anthems made up of about four or five pieces within that title for the Duke of Shandos um, in London. So they were commissioned. And uh, anyway, C H A N D O S. That's the heading. There are several of them. I forget how many, but uh, that's just arise. Let God arise is just one of. Them. A set. And who is the, the, the writer of the lyrics? Or, or oh, that's Psalm 86. Okay. Yeah. Would right? It be, would it be the same person who did um, the words for Handel? Um, yeah. He, I don't know in the case of these anthems. He may have just been given the prayer book and go to it kind of thing. I'm not clear about that. I'm so glad I can hear that music show. Thank you very much. Kurt, you, you sound like another little boy who wanted to go outside and play. <laughs> John? Yeah, this thought, you know, I used to go to the UBC recital hall and the organ there. Yes. Renaissance Baroque music. Music you've been playing, is that, uh, would that be Baroque or is that classical? Um, well, Handel, of course, and Bach are the uh, pinnacle of Baroque, uh, but the, the 16th century English composers belong to the Renaissance. Yeah, yeah and... Uh, so it's too clear-cut because, of course, there's a lot of bleeding across. But really, the Baroque period starts, or Baroque period, starts in the 1600, 
and then you've got your later Renaissance from 1500 to 1600. I mean, it's just a thumbnail guide. Yeah. And then uh, Mozart and Haydn kick in uh, by 1750, and then by the time you're in 19th century, you're into the Romantic period. So that's roughly how it breaks down. Martin? So you picked a couple of works from modern composers from the Baltic Republic. Yes. What's going on there? Is there a lot going on, or is it just a <coughs> I don't know what's behind it all. Um, the um, I, I can't explain the, the phenomenon of Avo Pert, I, but maybe coming out of their appalling oppression under the Soviet system, they're very cruelly treated. That may... It drive out this kind of musical expression. Um, uh, there is a Russian composer, but I can never get her name right. It's not Kudabelina, but I think it might be something like that. I should know because I interviewed her for two for CBC, um, and she showed. They were doing a piece at uh, I think it was an Owen series, Owen Underhill series, and uh, it was um, an anthem to the Holy Spirit. But she explained to me she could call it no such thing when she wrote it. It had to be a celebration of the five-year plan or something. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think I do think oppression can call can give rise to very rich music. The nationalist movement through the 19th century in Czechoslovakia, Bohemia, Italy, um, Germany, it just gives rise to music, and then people cheer that and they rally round that Sibelius in Finland same thing and of course the Baltic folk have a long history of being oppressed yes by many people oh indeed yes pardon um, and, uh, the evangelical tradition of course is, uh, one of its glories is studying scripture and even in small groups is there a way that we could integrate serious music into that that tradition to bring back good music into our midst. I mean, I, I, I just... This seems so set apart, such a glory, but it's, it seems set apart from our tradition. Yes. Well, it's a dilemma, because that... I, there's a separation there that's occurred, and I think it occurred roughly around the death of Bach and Handel, because music shot off into the secular realm after that. You went to church to hear music until 1750, and this is very, very brief and thumbnail, but roughly speaking, you, you went to your local monastery or church to hear music. Um, that was the chief patron, and then through a number of circumstances, not least of all the arrival of the Enlightenment, music shunts off into the opera house and the concert hall and the recital hall, um, and is not really seriously challenged by the church, and I think the Lutheran Church might have been the solution um, because it worked in harmony with some brilliant composers through uh, its later years. But the Church, I understand, I'm no expert, but I understand that the very preaching itself in the Lutheran Church by that time had deteriorated to rhetorical kind of displays. But now it, the music is so portable. Yes. Modern technology says, take it with you. Yes. So I mean, I, I'm I want you to dream. Right. This, this, an integration. Again. Right. Well, there are some there are some initiatives out there, and guess what? They aren't for, unfortunately coming from within the church. When I wanted to play you a little bit, if there's time, I will, um, of a piece by Eric Whitaker, which is an Alleluia, and I wanted to play it as a 
uh, interesting, a bit like the Arvo Perret, a quiet Alleluia of the utmost beauty. It's a virtual choir. I don't know if any... I've only just discovered this. And you you do a kind of Skype. I, there must be some kind of audition process. <laughs> Thousands of people from 75 countries will practice their part and it's sent in and digitally lined up. Um, this, well, look, uh, this... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. Encore! I won't play much but this is what it sounds like. And it has a bit of a... Now that's obviously a solo voice on top. And if you look it up online, Eric Whitaker Virtual Choir, they have a background with little tiny squares with all the singers in them. Thousands of singers. I don't think this would work with Bach, <laughs> but these slower pieces. Yes. So there's one approach. Um, Skype. No. <laughs> I think, to be serious, um, what we've got to do is break down this fear of conceit in the arts that because it does expertise has been needed in all the samples I've played, otherwise they wouldn't have been recorded, we shy off and think, oh, we can't do that. We don't have to do Arvo Pert, but we can do some other things uh, very beautifully and introduce them. I've got a real feel right now, I don't know how where it's going to go, for the children here. Um, at the children's level, we can introduce them to fine hymns. Uh, I'm not sure if it helped, but I wrote a, uh, three hymns for the Christmas um, for the children, which they've used downstairs. And if a people within the church, like Owen is doing, write music um, for the church, I think that breaks down one barrier, that it's this us versus them crumbles a bit. But it, the thing that has to go is the notion of music as a utilitarian thing. It's just there to be used. Um, there I would really take issue with Rick Warren. Music's just a bundle of notes. It's the words that matter. That is an ignorant statement and regrettable um, and has done a lot of harm and just reinforced a very superficial approach to music in the evangelical realm. Um, the other extreme, of course, is extreme um, manipulation through music, but that depends on a kind of commodified commercial filmic kind of use of music. Okay, in the back, George, and then Sheila. So. I just wanted to bring up the subject of the TDM. Yes. Again, the, um, you know, the words, the words of prayer and praise are just wonderful, and there's some great um, musical settings to the TDM, and I know it's quite lengthy, but that's probably the only reason I can think of why it isn't, it isn't um, used in the traditional service. Yes, and that is the reason. a shortened version of it, right? There's a paraphrase in that uh, hymn book, psalm book that John Stott's church, also Lion Place, put out. We used it for a while in my time at St. John's, not much. I don't know. I find poetically we don't come out the better for those kind of efforts. Sometimes we do, but 
It just see there's a breadth there which is embedded in the language, a set of dimensions to the word, to the meaning, which gets foreshortened and almost trivialized sometimes. Um, I think we have to make room for more listening and being fed, as well as participating in things which are worth taking time over. Because it would only be. Um it would only be done at morning prayer. Yes. Morning prayer, yeah. Morning prayer is a short, shorter service. Yes. Anyway, I know you're not in, a, in, in charge of the format of the service anymore, but, no. but it seems strange to me. It's a shame. Well, I used to get around it a little bit. I don't know if Terry has. I expect he will. Um, I used to have it as an anthem. That's one solution. Yeah. George? Ed, um, first, thanks for this wonderful, uh, <laughs> inspiring presentation. Several of uh, the questions and uh, <coughs> several of the things you said, um, I think, uh, focus our attention on the vast accessibility of music at the highest or at the lowest Hmm. level in its uh, the technology of production uh, of reproduction of distribution the markets of music are absolutely unprecedented as uh, we all know we could go home most of us if we've got access to an internet uh, we can hear anything hmm. almost anything I mean on my <laughs> Apple Music iTunes hmm. I've got I don't know how many versions of uh, Bach's uh, Christmas Oratorio hmm. and I can't make up my mind as to which one I should play this year or next year or in between what would you just say a few things about the context for all of this you've talked about commodification mm. and the subversive and dark elements uh, of all of this but is this a time going from when you only heard music in uh, a chapel or in uh, uh, a church uh, to where you can take it anywhere and you can get it anywhere I think um, the, the danger well not the danger the issue with it is that uh, we stop passing any kind of, dare I use the word, judgment on what we hear because we're persuaded that it's all, it's all at one level. I think that's one danger that comes from this accessibility. Um, and with our tendency to want, when we're in the mood, to go for the easier road, um, I think there's a danger that we'll flip channels, so to speak, um, on the other hand, I think it should be um, an area, a territory that Christians should explore and really listen and just type in your favourite um, text or hymn or issue, a theological issue or theological concern and see what comes up. But it's, it's somehow being able to say, well, I've heard this idiom before, it's used a lot. Last time it was in Safeway. I want to hear some something. There's got to be something better, <laughs> and there it's it's easier to find now. So I think it can I think it can go two ways. Um, what interests me is the incredible growth in interest in choral singing and singing 
uh, good music. I've mentioned before, I think, the new music director, choral director at Trinity Western. Wes did fantastic work. But this guy, his shtick is to bring to the students who are coming from um, sometimes quite strict even, I dare say, fundamentalist backgrounds, and he's introducing them to music which is hot off the press and is very much along the Arvo Pert um, lines. And you think, I think, as the accompanist, I think, they're not going to go for this. This is, They do go for it. And they say, wow, just like Mary Hines did in her CBC interview. She says, wow, yeah, I, and I have encountered this several times. Uh, young people, usually young, we'll say, perhaps coming to an Advent carol service here, they say, ah, we've been missing out, as one student said to Susan. I've been missing out. Very much like I feel impoverished. And I think one, my little, fine to wrap up, my little warning sign is that I personally believe a quality, and I know a number of people have written on this, of popular idiom, popular culture, is that it blocks out choice. It's not, it's a bottom line industry. It's not interested in you going off and finding something different. It wants you locked in to the predictable. Um, and it's, it's a shame to see many, not all, churches falling for that. Um, because, as Lauren Wilkinson said, there's so much more to worship with out there. Before we get to Sheila, I'd like to take the privilege of interjecting just a little bit into this conversation that's just been had. Uh, we went, we don't go to a lot of concerts. We went to a concert uh, like a week and a half ago at the Jewish Community Center. Uh, Victoria Hanna, you cannot hear her recorded. She does not record. Huh. And uh, she did a number of uh, things that she based on the Song of Songs. Uh. She comes out of an Orthodox tradition. Yeah. She's not doing what she's supposed to be doing. Uh, it <laughs> was very interesting. I bet. Anyway, I just wanted to interject that, Sheila. Well, this has been a really rich experience, and sort of the road to Calvary and beyond. And I really like that last one you did. It was like dawn breaking yes. at the very end of it. Yes. But I have a technical question because I was, my ear was not telling me the truth. The piece that has a very long bass continuum. I thought it was a part who else to do this, but it sounded more like a string. His string instruments, yes. Is it? Yes, in the other part, yes. With, with the longest bow in... That's right, the they were probably crossbowing, yes. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, it's something... There's another little thread here. I wish I could have played it, but frankly, it's too heartbreaking. I, I can't I break up on the play. It's by James McMillan, Christian, Scottish composer. Um, a Child's Prayer. I mean, I've got it here, but really it's... The text is this, Welcome, Jesus, deep in my soul forever stay, joy and love my heart are fitting on this glad communion day. Um, it's called a child's prayer, but unfortunately, the sad thing is it's um, in uh, commemoration of the Dunblane massacre of school children. And how McMillan's got around it is just amazing, but it is too heartbreaking to play. It's... Um, so the text he treats very sensitively, but the piece is very slow and reflective. And there are these two trouble voices, children's voices, going over the top. 
Um, I mention that only because there, I, I can think of situations where that would be maudlin and manipulative and would draw on a whole series of cliches to bring us to tears um, for perhaps p- perhaps the wrong reasons or at least the wrong initial reasons so there are all these things to steer through <laughs> at, you bring us back to your comment on sentiment and sentimentality yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. well thank you very much Ed I think we have to go oppose And we look forward to your return. Oh, you do. (laughs) Thank you very much.